Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, uh, earlier this summer, a few months ago, Christine and I uh, installed a, well, <laughs> pay to get installed, let's be honest, a ground level deck on the side of our house. Uh, our house, we've got a small little backyard that's got a hill on it. And then on the side of our house, which is where the, how you get to the backyard, we have like these glass sliding doors on the side of our house. There was like these, these, these white rocks. And so we never really spent a lot of time out there. It wasn't really fun for the kids. And so we put this ground level deck in. And as I was telling people, I had multiple people ask me what we were going to do with our little fire pit. We had this like small little stone fire pit on the side of our house uh, because with the deck, we had, to, we had to pull it up. And so they asked me what I was going to do. And I had to remind multiple people that I don't make a fire. So we had maybe three to four fires a year, and that's because people were over, and they said, let's make a fire, because I can't keep a fire going. I just can't. I have one of these, uh, I don't even know what you call them, but we call them these, like, little, these little nuggets that burn for 15 minutes, so you like, have plenty of time to get this thing going, and when that's done, fire's over. Like, I just, I can't do it. And so everyone's like, what about the fire pit? I'm like, we don't use the fire pit. It doesn't matter anyway. And so we built this deck, and it's awesome. The weather's getting cooler. And so, and so we're really excited about that. We don't really miss the fire pit at all because we never used it. Uh, now, here's the thing about fire, though. Uh, fire is one of the probably few things in life that is both inviting and terrifying. Fire can either be inviting or it can be terrifying depending on the situation. If you uh, want to actually build a fire and you actually have the ability to do that and you want to make s'mores or it's cold outside and you're camping, it can be inviting, it can be warm. Maybe you have warm childhood memories of doing things by the fire. It can be a good inviting thing, but it can also be terrifying. If you have a house fire or the fires that are happening out west or in Australia earlier this year, it can be destructive. It can be awful, right? Depending on the context and how you're interacting with it, Fire can either be inviting or terrifying, and so perhaps it's not uh, surprising to us that God's first appearance in the book of Exodus is as a flame. God's first appearance in the book of Exodus is as a flame, and we're going to see that this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Exodus chapter 3, or if a phone, if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, use one of the black ones in front of you, and you can take that one home if you don't own one. It is our gift to you. We are in the story, we are in the book of Exodus, which is God calling his people out of slavery into Egypt and making them into a nation from which the Messiah would come. Uh, we've been a few weeks into this now. We've seen the Israelites be oppressed, uh, be beaten, be enslaved. Uh, 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 legalized genocide is happening, a lot of terrible things. In Exodus chapter 2, we see the story of Moses, who was rescued as an infant. And then uh, last week, we saw as an older man. Uh, he, he was uh, kind of run out of Egypt for murdering an Egyptian. The Israelites excommunicated him. The Egyptians didn't want him to be there. And so he has a son who, named, who he names Gershom, which means an alien in the land. He's far away from Egypt, rejected by his own people, rejected by the Egyptians. Uh, he is not a man that any of us would think that God was going to use in powerful ways. And that's what we're going to see this morning as the, the Israelites were crying out to Egypt or to God at the end of chapter 2, asking for God to deliver them. And we're going to see him come into the story and use Moses to begin this mission. And so here's what it says, uh, Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. What's, uh, what's also just a side note, this is free, this is actually quite interesting. This is the story of the burning bush. Um, what we actually see happening is the bush isn't actually burning. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. So it's not actually burning. So there you go. Uh, no one else finds that fascinating. I was like, this is crazy to me. It's not actually burning. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll read most of, the, of chapter 3, and then we'll apply. Most of the application will come at the end. Here's what it says, verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. 
As Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw, or when he, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove your, the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So here we have God beginning his plan to rescue Israel from Egypt. Horeb, as a side note, is a, is a little, it's, it's not very close to Midian where he was traveling from. This would have taken him a couple of weeks journey uh, to be in the kind of the mountain range of Horeb. We're not, why, we're not sure why he's all the way out there. Was it because maybe the grassy conditions weren't very good for the flock and so he had to travel? Or we also know throughout the year, uh, many shepherds would have to go on higher and higher ground because a lot of the grass was eaten. And so for whatever the re- reason, he's a couple of weeks journey journey outside of Midian with the flock, feeding them, watering them, and doing all of these things. Uh, And so this is where he is. As a side note, Mount Sinai, if you're familiar with Mount Sinai, it's going to play a large role in the book of Exodus. It is in this mountain range that he is in. We're not sure if he's actually on Sinai right now, but he is certainly close to it if he's not actually on it. So he sees a bush, and he does what all of us would do, right? He goes over to it because why? The bush is not actually burning, It's consumed by fire, so that's pretty crazy. Let's go see what's happening. That's what he does. Uh, We see an angel of the Lord, or the Lord's presence is there. Uh, He is told to remove his sandals because he's in holy ground. He's near close to the presence of the Lord, and he has a message for Moses. Now, what does Moses do here, right? He is afraid, and we actually see this throughout Scripture. Whenever somebody is somehow in the presence of God or there's an angel in the midst, it's actually a quite terrifying Thing. It's a common theme to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And so he's afraid. And so here's what he says. It says, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their suffering, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring, to, or bring them from, the, from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God hears their cries. Christ here implies that they are actually praying. We, we saw this last week. We don't have any indication until recently that the Israelites were actually crying out to God. So they're finally praying, asking the God of their forefathers to rescue them. And so God has a plan to, to deliver them, and he wants to use Moses to do it. So here's Moses' reply, verse 11. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, we will all worship God at this mountain. They will return to the area that he's actually meeting in the presence of God. Now, what's interesting here is Moses replies to God's invitation to this pretty big task of leading his people out of Egypt uh, with the question, right? Moses says, Who am I? Who am I that I should do this? Moses sees himself in no position to do this. And if you've been following along with us, 
we would all assume the same things. Here are a few of the things that we've seen about Moses so far in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, first thing is that Moses is no longer in a position of power. He was a prince in Egypt, and now he's no longer in a position of power at all. He's living in a completely foreign land, away from any family or friends that he had might have grown up with. Um, he is a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock, as we see in this passage, which, by the way, means he doesn't have very much money. He was a prince of Egypt, had all, a, a lot of authority and a lot of power, and now he doesn't even have his own flock, right? He's attending his father-in-law's flock. Uh, we're going to see in the next couple of chapters uh, that Moses has been out of Egypt for about 40 years by this point. So he is an older man. Uh, he's, been very, he's been out of Egypt a long time. Again, no one would have expected God to use him. When he left Egypt, he was, the Pharaoh who was still alive then wanted to kill him. And the Israelites uh, rebuked him because they didn't, want, they didn't want Pharaoh to get mad at the Israelites for killing this Egyptian because it was Moses' fault. So he's rejected by both parties, and he's old. He's old. Right? So there is nothing about this. As we read the book of Exodus, you might be familiar with the story of Moses, and we can kind of think, well, he was this amazing guy. And sure, he was a man of character and courage, as we'll see. But there is nothing about Moses at this point that any of us would think that he would be the one that God would use. And so one of the things we see here, however, is that it's not about him. Right? One of the things we're supposed to see as we read this story is that this is not about Moses and his ability, but it's about God being with him. It's not about him. It's about God being with him. And I think this is helpful for us when we think about times that maybe God is asking us to do something and we can refer to, we can, we can be like Moses. Like, who am I? I don't have all these abilities. I don't have the perfect track record. But again, it's not about us. It's about God being with us. Uh, it kind of reminds me when I was in high school, this idea I did this project, and I don't remember what class it was for, and I really don't know why I did it. Um, it was assigned to me, obviously. Um, but it was this idea of what, where I asked people two questions. Right? I asked people two questions. I asked them to rate their driving ability on a scale of 1 to 10, with 5 being average, how well of a driver that they thought they were at driving a car. And then I also asked people to rate their ability to ride a unicycle from 1 to 10, again, 5 being average. And so I was curious to see what people would say. And so I, did, I asked a lot of people what they thought, how, how good they thought that they were at these two things. And so when I asked people how good they were at driving, the average answer was somewhere around like eight and a half, like the seven to nine, mostly like eight to 10, is what people rated themselves of their driving ability. And then I asked them again, how well are you, how good are you at riding a, motor, a unicycle? And the average answer was a one, maybe a two, right? Because again, nobody, most of us can't ride a unicycle. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with what I'm asking them? If five is average, not everybody can be an eight or a nine at driving a car, right? You can drive a car. Well, hello, most people in America can also drive a car. And by the way, I've driven with some of you. You are not an above average driver, right? <laughs> eight or nine means you are very much above average, right? Very few people like me have a pristine driving record with no tickets, okay? So I could say I'm an eight or nine, but you can't, because that just statistically doesn't make sense. Everybody cannot be an eight or nine. Statistically, we have to all be close to a five. Now, the funny thing is, here's this, it's the same is true for riding a unicycle. The average human being cannot ride a unicycle. So if you can't ride a unicycle, guess what? You're a five. You're average. Good job, right? Congratulations. Hope you want to feel good about yourself this morning. And I say all of that uh, to make this point that you are exceedingly average, and God loves you, right? You are exceedingly average, and at the same time, God loves you. And I think this is important for us to understand in our 
culture today where it's very performance-driven. It's very much you have to achieve and you have to do all these things. And of course, we translate this uh, cultural value to our relationship with God, thinking if God wants us to do anything, it's because we have to get everything together. And if, if we're not perfect, if we're not awesome, if we're not above average in every way, then we're no good. Then we're no good. Listen, you are exceedingly average. You are not awesome, right? And neither am I. And yet God loves us anyway. And if this is true, which is what's happening here with Moses, then the question then becomes for us, here's the question we ought to ask ourselves. Where are you running from God because you think his ask rests on your ability? Where are you not doing what God might be asking you to do because you think it's about you and how much money you have and how much uh, influence you have and how good looking you might be or how educated you might be? Where are you running from God because you think his ask, what he wants you to do, rests on your ability. And I also want to say this. I think sometimes when we, when we talk about being used by God or God asking us to do something, we immediately think of like sharing the gospel, which is good. But this is not the only thing God asks us to do. Sometimes God asks us to do things that are pretty cool. Right? What God is asking Moses to do here is awesome, right? Like this is a really big deal. I think sometimes God gives us desires and, and, and passions to pursue and he's asking us to do this. Maybe there's a nonprofit you want to be a part of or there's a tutoring thing that you want to do or there's somebody you want to help or some nonprofit you want to be a part of or maybe there's something that you want to lead or you want to start and you're really excited about it but you have all these reasons why you shouldn't do this, right? There might be good things that you are passionate about or you're excited about that you want to do in your life and you were thinking, again, I'm not amazing, I'm not awesome, I don't have all these things, so I can't do it. Remember, you're average. I'm average. Some might even say below average, right? And God still wants to use us. It's not about you and your ability. It's about God being with us. It's about God being with us. So where are you running from God because you think it's about you instead of realizing it's about God being with you? That is what Moses is running into right here. So we'll continue in the story. Verse 13, it says this. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, this, uh, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So God reveals who he is to Moses. He reveals his name to Moses. The question, however, is how are we supposed to take this? Like, What does this actually mean? I am who I am. That doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. We would follow up the question by saying this, you are what? Like, you are what? Right? If you ask someone their name and they didn't give you their name, they just said something that they did, you'd be like, you know, I am what? Like, you say, hey, I'm, I'm dealing with your name. I am. Okay? What are you? Like, this doesn't make sense. What is actually happening here? What I think is actually honestly really amazing is that uh, the more literal translation of what uh, Moses, God is telling Moses is not translated into English because it doesn't make a lot of grammatical sense. So I am who I am makes somewhat sense. The more literal translation, though, in Hebrew of what Moses or God tells to Moses about what his name is, is not I am who I am, but rather I be who I be. 
Which that sounds awesome, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I be who I be. Yeah, you know what I'm saying here? Right? You, you, you dab on them there a little bit, right? right? Ye, right? Whoa. Right? Just, <laughs> some of you are like, what is he saying here? <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's just, I had it. As a side note about me, I might as well just say this. I asked the staff if I should dab on stage. I said, I can get away with it. They said, don't do it. Um, And if you tell me not to do something, that just means I have to do it. And so all that to say, this is awesome, okay? I be who I be. Now, (laughs) you'll remember this now, okay? Um, And so without getting super technical, because there's there's been a lot written about what this actually means. Here's, Here's basically... As quickly as I could say, um, I be or I am, as we have it translated here, comes from the Hebrew word ayeh, which is which is uh, which is where we get the name Yahweh, right? Which is what God is saying. He is Yahweh. This is how God is actually most often referred to throughout the Old Testament. Now, most of our English translations it doesn't often say Yahweh, but you'll know uh, whenever it says the word Lord in your Old Testament and all the, all the letters are capital, so it's a capital O with a smaller but still capital O-R-D, that is Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh. And what this means uh, is that God is essentially saying this, that I have been who I have been, I will always be who I have been, and I'm not shaped by others, right? I will be who I be. And I think that's actually a little bit more helpful besides the fact that it just sounds awesome is because am, I am who I am can kind of sound passive, where I be who I be sounds more active, that God is actively involved and he is in control of all of these things, right? I am who I am. I be who I be. I have always existed. I am the one true God. This is what he is telling to Moses. And then he says this to him in verse 16. He says, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman standing in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters so that you will plunder the Egyptians. Right? He's saying, You're gonna, they're going to say no to you, but by the time I'm done being who I be, they're going to be essentially paying you to go. But before any of that can happen... The first step for Moses is to go to meet with the elders and to the leaders of Israel, and then with them go and face Moses, to tell them that God has heard you, that God is here to rescue you, and then go to ask Pharaoh to take a three-day trip. Uh, Moses, or the Pharaoh will then obviously say no because you are forced slave labor. He's not just going to give that up. And then when he says no, God's going to be awesome. And then you, when you leave, again, you're going to not just leave, but you're going to actually plunder the Egyptians on your way out. Now, as a side note, you might be wondering as you read or listen to this text, what we're supposed to do with the fact that Moses is asking Pharaoh to go on a three-day journey, 
Like, is God asking Moses to lie to Pharaoh? Because that would seem a little interesting. Um, the good news is he's not trying to lie to Pharaoh. Uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, even today, Middle Eastern culture, but even more so back in, in these time periods, um, th- they would do what's called a, a, uh, a suggestive ask, I guess is the best way to put it. It's basically a gentle way to make requests. And so oftentimes they would say things without actually saying things because it sounds uh, nicer, if you will. So for example, there's a couple of, we don't do this as much in our culture today, but we have a few of them. A few things where we're asking people, but we mean something. Else. So, for example, uh, when we say, like, if you're with a bunch of people and you ask someone to hand you the remote, right, what you're really saying is, give me the remote so that I can control what's on the TV, right? But that, sound, like, that sounds kind of harsh. So, you don't say that, right? You say, can I have the remote? But it implies something else. Or if somebody asks you for a, for a second of your time, what they're really saying is, I have a question or I want to talk to you for an undisclosed amount of time. But that might come across as, I don't know, so we just kind of, a cultural idiom is to say, can I have a second of your time? A three-day journey would have been a cultural idiom of this time, essentially saying that they're asking Pharaoh to let them leave for an undisclosed amount of time, for as long as they want to leave, is essentially how the Pharaoh would have understood it, which is why, of course, he's going to say no. But he's going to say no because he's like, no, you're not going to leave for however long that you want to leave. I'm not going to let you do that. So he's going to say no, and thus we get the beginnings of the Exodus, right? The beginnings of this story. Now, two kind of themes or characteristics about God that I want to point out from this text and that we actually see throughout the book of Exodus is this. We, we see this idea that God is both transcendent and imminent. We see this idea that God is both transcendent and imminent. So let me define what these things are for us so that we can understand what's going on here. Transcendence, and there's a lot of ways you can define it. I think one of, this is one of the best ways, especially for our purposes this morning, it's this. That God is independent of, above, and beyond creation. So we serve a transcendent, all-powerful God. This is, again, this is what Yahweh means. Yahweh means I am self-defining. You don't define me. You don't tell me who I am or what I do. I do those things because I am transcendent and I am above everything, which means that you and me do not get to define God. Right? We do not get to define God, which of course goes against maybe our modern cultural sensibilities when sometimes how we describe God or how we talk about God or how others in our culture might talk about God. It's not uh, too uncommon to maybe hear people say things like, I don't think God would do this. Or uh, if there was a God, surely he would do this. Or uh, my God would not uh, behave this way. My God would do these things. What are we doing when we say things like that? We are saying that God actually isn't transcendent. He isn't above us and more powerful and more wise. He is a God that we can kind of control and manipulate, right? But the reality of the situation is we can't do that, right? If God is all-powerful and strong and knows things that we don't know and is outside of time, then, then we don't get to shape him in the way that we want. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that it's easy to accept some of the things that God says or some of the things that God might be leading us to or some of the things that Scripture says about God or some of the things that He asks us to do. There ought to be times when we question or even doubt. And it's going to be different based on where you live in history, the place that you live, the cultural moment in which you live. There are, the Scripture goes against us in different ways based on our culture. So we should expect a transcendent God to say or do things or behave in a way that in our current earthly minds, we cannot fully understand, which is why a pastor and author, Tim Keller, puts it this way. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself, right? If your God never disagrees with you, you are no longer following a transcendent God, right? You're not, 
right? Now, now, here's the thing about this. Although we might not like it, or although it may kind of go up against what we want to be true sometimes, I think at least in Western culture, we are at least uh, familiar or understand this idea that God has transcended, right? We, we might be able to grant that if God does exist and he created all this, then he is powerful and that he is strong and he's outside of time. That, although I might have doubts, that, that makes sense to me. And our kind of our Western culture, what we are not as familiar with is this idea that God is also imminent. He's not just transcendent, but he's also imminent. And here's a way that you could describe imminent. You could say it this way, that God is with us and among us. So he's not just some far distant transcendent God who's powerful, but at the same time, he's also with us and among us. And we see this even in this text, that he's interacting with human affairs, right? The, the Israelites cry out and God hears. Uh, God meets Moses in a, in a bush that is not burning, but is on fire and not consumed, right? That God is intimately involved in the things of this world. He hears the cries of this people. He approaches Moses. And I think what's helpful for us to understand is that when you see God as both transcendent and also imminent, you now have a very distinct Christian way of seeing God. This is one of the unique things about Christianity among all the religions in the world is that he's not just transcendent. So, for example, many monotheistic religions will kind of understand and accept that God is transcendent and he is powerful. And many Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism will see God as imminent, that he is in all things and he is around, he is connected with us. But only in Christianity do you see a God who is actually both. He's outside of time and he's powerful, but he's also deeply invested in his creation. And this is important, right? Because if you divorce these two or you just have one or the other, you run into a problem. If you have a God who is just transcendent, then he is impersonal and he is distant. Right? He's like, if it's like a deistic God. He's created everything, and he's kind of stepping back. He's impersonal, and he's distant if he's just transcendent. But at the same time, if he's just imminent, and he's in all things, and he's around all things, this might not be like perfectly correct for my movie buffs, but essentially you get, what the, you get the movie Avatar. Where what happens in Avatar, where God is kind of everywhere, and his power is in everything, and he's in my ponytail, and I can connect it to a tree, and we can all be God together, and we can all get healed, and he's in all these things, this... Is imminent gone too far? Because here's the reality. A tree is not God. You are not God. Your kids are not God. Your dog is not God. Your passions are not God. Your sexual identity is not God. God is God, and yet he dwells among us. He's transcendent, and he's imminent. This is why we get passages like this in John chapter 1, where John, the author, the disciple of Jesus, is talking about God coming into the world, and it says this. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally translated that God came and pitched his tents or pitched, or pitched the tabernacle among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Right? What we see happening here is that you need both a transcendent and an imminent God. You need a powerful and a compassionate God. This is the God that we see revealed to us throughout Scripture. And this is the gospel, that God who is outside of time, who is the perfect creator of all things, comes in the form of man named Jesus to live a life that you and I could not live, die a death that we deserve to defeat the powers of sin and darkness so that any of us, not because of us or how awesome or should I say average we are, but because of him, he received the grace and mercy of God. And all we have to do, I think this is amazing. Well, this is so amazing to me. All we have to do is be honest about our situation. 
Like just to be able to say, I don't have it all together, which we know is true, that I sometimes blow it, which we know is true, that we can say these things to God, that we can repent of our sins, that God is a merciful and gracious God. He is transcendent, yet he's also imminent. He is with us. And he desires to give us grace and mercy. And he is inviting us to experience that in the word become flesh in Jesus, right? Jesus, as we've been saying throughout the series, is the goal, right? Jesus is the goal. What he has done for us is the goal. The invitation to receive the grace and mercy of God is the goal. And wouldn't you have it? Wouldn't you know it? Exodus 3 actually points to Jesus. And you're saying, how does it do that, Dylan? I'm so glad you asked. In fact, I prepared an answer for you. Read one more passage of scripture in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus refers to Exodus 3. And you may not know this, and on a surface level reading without Exodus 3, you actually miss what all Jesus is saying here. In fact, the song that we sang earlier that Jesus is the great I am comes from this passage, which comes from Exodus chapter 3. And what's happening in John chapter 8 is Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders of the day, and they're upset. Because he's performing miracles, he's forgiving people, he's claiming to be God, and they're not happy about this. And so they, they try to say that he's demon-possessed, and they're trying to kind of give all these reasons about why he needs to stop doing what he is doing. And, and so here's, I'll pick up the conversation in verse 53. The religious leaders say this to Jesus after they're trying to stump him, after they're really upset. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say to you, I don't know him, I would be, like a, li- I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, what is he saying? That all of God calling Israel was about me eventually coming to make the way, not just for Israel, but for the whole world to receive the grace and mercy of God. And so the Jews were like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. What do you mean you were there when Abraham was around? That's like thousands of years ago. So they says this to him, verse 57. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now again, verse 58 doesn't make sense on its own, right? If he said before Abraham was, I was, well, maybe that makes sense because he's claiming to have always existed, but that's not what he he says there. What does he say? I am, right? What is he saying? I am God. He is saying that the God who appeared to Moses, that presence is me that I am part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, that I was around when Moses first entered God's presence. That was actually my presence, which is why he gets this reaction in verse 59. It says this, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. What's interesting is sometimes people will say that when you read the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus never says, I am God. And so we're just kind of like putting things in there that aren't true. He would be horrified if he knew that we were claiming that. Of course, this, this betrays an ignorance about what is going on, that people that say this, and there's no, I'm not trying to knock anybody, but they don't actually know what's happening here, right? He's using this language as saying, I am. He's saying, I be. He's saying that he is Aye, that he actually is God in the flesh, which is why we've been saying throughout this story, this series, that scripture is a unified story that leads to who? 
Okay, I'm more excited about this than you guys are, apparently. One of these weeks, we'll get it on the first try. We're in church, so you know the answer has to be? Okay, Scripture is a unified story that points to who? Jesus, and that is what we see happening in John chapter 8, which we see happening in Exodus chapter 3, that Jesus has always existed, and the goal was always to point to him, the Messiah, who lived a life that we could not live, who did what the Israelites could not do, which you and I could not do in our average ability, that God himself came to give us grace and mercy. And in Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites are about to move the story towards Jesus forward. They're about to move the story towards Jesus forward with God appearing to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, of which God himself, Jesus in the flesh, or Jesus, uh, was a part of that. And so as we kind of come to a close here this morning, I do want to mention this. Here's the thing. You are not Moses. I'm not Moses, right? I don't think any of us are going to lead a nation one day. There's there's not a president. No no, no future presidents are in this room. I'm sorry if your mama already told you you can make it. I'm just here to to be honest, right? You're average, so you're not going to be president. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) I'm not going to get myself in trouble here. So all I have to say, like, we're not awesome, and we're also not Moses. But here's the thing. Just because you're not Moses doesn't mean you can't be used by God, right? Because, again, God calls all of us in our moments, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families to be a part of what God is doing. And so as we close, here's what I want us to leave with as we read Exodus 3. I want to be reminded of, and that's this, that to live a life for God, you must live a life near God. If you want to live a life for God and honor him and follow him in the places that he has you, you must live a life near God. What have we seen this morning? That God is with us. He's with us. The question then becomes, are we with him? Right? The question not, is not, does God care? It's not, that is he interested in our lives? The, the answer to that is a resounding yes, and we see that ultimately in the, in the coming of Jesus. The question then is, are we with him? And what we're going to see, what you see as you read the Old Testament, as you read the story of Israel, is that when they are not walking with God, when they are not near God, they do a lot of bad things. Like things do not go the way that they would have wanted to go. And so the question is the same for us. When we are not walking with God, we are not near God, that can lead us into trouble. Because again, it's not about our ability. It's about God being with us that makes the difference. So what are the things that you and I can do or should do uh, to help us be near to God? Uh, For example, what does scripture reading look like for you? And I don't know if this will get me into trouble, but I just want to say this. You don't have to read the Bible every day. You don't. Like, I'm just, I'm I'm letting you off the hook, okay? So you can just blame me if anyone gets mad at you. If you you meet Jesus one day, you can blame me. Here's the thing. Here's why I say this. Because I know many people struggle. And we have this idea in our mind that if I don't read the Bible every day, then I messed up, that I've blown it. And so God's not happy with me. So that we don't even try. I say, it's okay. A couple days a week is better than nothing right? That's one way we can draw near to God. We can pray for our country and for people and even for our local areas, right? What you're doing now is one of the things you can do, Coming, being a part of a local body, local expression, worshiping together, hear God's word together, joining a community group, serving. There are various things that we can do to draw near to God. And it's not this checklist. It's not this, oh, I haven't done all these things that God is mad at me. There's plenty of things that we can do. The question is, what are you doing to draw near to him? And what would it look like for you to to create habits in your life that allow you to draw near to him? Because it's not about your ability to be used by God. It's about God being with you. It's about God being with me. It's about God coming into the creation to save average people like you and me because he loves us. And he's inviting us to be near him. 
not to earn a gold star, not to get something from him, but for us to experience the grace and the mercy of God. God appears to Moses as a transcendent and eminent God, and it's the same God who dwells within us and among us. He loves us, he cares for us, and he invites us to be with him. It's not about us, it's about us being with God or God being with us, and we see that in Jesus' coming, that he loves you, that he cares for you, and encouragement for us is to go, not do things for God, be with God, draw near to God, and see what God might do through us as we follow him. Let's pray.